Okay, turn to um, Ecclesiastes 3. And we're going to look at uh, 1 through 22. We're going to call this message Time and Sovereignty. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we, we pray today that we would be reminded of the true nature of your sovereign governorship over every single detail of our lives. Um, we ask that your Spirit would, would tame our unbelieving fears and ignite our faith-saturated passions, all for the sake of the kingdom of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. So time, time itself, time in many regards is cruel. Things happen around us or things happen to us and we react or we respond in a way that maybe seems good to us at the time. And oftentimes those things happen that are outside of our control. Uh, they just sort of happen to us, we respond, but it wasn't really our fault to begin with. Um, it, it's just the way the world works. Time itself has this uncanny ability to undermine our trust that what we do now matters for the future. I'll say that again. Time has this uncanny ability to undermine what we do now in the present and, and what we think it may do for the future. Um, the, the inexorable vanity in our labor, which we've been talking about in our labor and work, makes it seem like that what we do today won't necessarily have any lasting impression for the future, won't have any meaning for tomorrow. Will it, does it matter that I'm changing diapers today? Well, I'm gonna to have to do it tomorrow. Or, you know, there's, we don't always see how time affects us, so we're unsure about it. It's not, it's not that it won't have any meaning at all tomorrow. It's not so much that, but that we may not get to enjoy the meaning today. None of us can live in the future. We can dream, we can plan, we can look to the future. Um, we talked a lot about that in our eschatology Christmas um, um, study. But, but we're kind of stuck in the present. And then all of a sudden, what I just said is already in the past. So we have this paradigm to work with. Koheleth, that's the preacher, he explores time and sovereignty in today's passage. And he's going to give us some basic instructions on how to deal with both things. How do we deal with time? How do we deal with God's sovereignty? In the end, we must remember that mankind must always be put in his proper position in the world, and it is most certainly not the position of being the master of his own fate and destiny. So, sorry, you just don't get to control those things. It's not yours too. Uh, this too is vanity. <laughs> so let's work through our text. Look at verse 1. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. He says, there is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. Note that. This verse is suitable assurance that God is in control, and this means that he actively governs, he actively uh, orchestrates, and he providentially superintends all of history. So we are, you know, the Black Coffee Calvinist group. We love the sovereignty of God. God is exhaustively, inexhaustibly sovereign over every detail. He, you know, the, the examples from Scripture, he knows the hairs on your head and so on and so forth. He is that sovereign. So he, uh, Koheleth reminds us of that. He superintends all of history. There's never a moment where God says, well, gee, I didn't know that was going to happen. He's never taken by surprise. So it is appointed, which means that time does not exist on its own volition. Time does not exist on its own will, its own volition. Rather, time exists 
history progresses because God makes it so. It's appointed, which implies that there is somebody who does the appointing. Yet, this is an exciting, <laughs> well, it's an opportunity, I should say, um, for not only assurance, but sobriety. So, uh, yes, God's providence is, is active, and you can be assured of that. But, of course, man is, we're not equipped to manage the time and seasons on our own. We just don't have that ability. So God's control, though glorious and comforting, is also a wake-up call. Um, it is mysterious. It's not entirely intelligible. We don't fully grasp something that's not <coughs> graspable. We're finite, he's infinite, that sort of paradigm. So in other words, we don't always understand it, which means that we certainly cannot control it. We don't control time. Koheleth tells us that there is a time and a season for everything. This appropriate time, we should note, is not about duration. He's not talking about time in terms of duration, but opportunity. There is a time. There is an opportunity for everything. Things take place. There is, there is regularity and flow to the created order, time included. And that's because God built it in as a feature in his order. There, there is a time for these things. There is regularity. There is flow. Um, we, we all know if you were to um, decide to go ahead and punch a wall, that there may be a stud behind that wall and you have broken your hand. That's something God built in. Cause and effect. <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, so there's time and regularity. And obviously because of that, human activity... Human activity is not permitted to function autonomously. Uh, we are called, as men and women and children, to function under the sovereignty of God. When you try to function under your own sovereignty, things go bad. So God is the one who imposes time on us. It's not our decision to make. Which is why we're constantly saying, if only I had more time. If only I had more time. Well, who are you, oh man? Right? Sort of the Romans uh, critique. You can't just make more time for yourself? Time is actually one of the greatest judgments on autonomous men. See, everything that happens in this time-bound universe is absolutely, unapologetically, underneath the authority of God who rules heaven. We don't have to apologize for that. Nothing happens outside of his providential superintendence. He is, he is precise in all of his measurements. He is ordered in all of his creativity. All of his creati creative proclivities that there's order to it. There's a reason why uh, zebras look the way they do, why giraffes have certain amounts of spots, why, um, you know, why elephants look ridiculous but are so cool. Um, there's order to it, and there's a reason for it, and that's because that's the way God functions. Um, everything, everything in this world has its proper place on the stage of history, and God is rather excited about it. Um, I, would, I would recommend... Um, uh, the uh, documentaries that came out, The Riot and the Dance, uh, they're very, very well done. We have the first one. The second one's coming out soon. When you look at the created world, the animals and plants and, and all the beauty that is God's creation, you, you have to draw the right conclusion that God is such an ordered God. And not only is he ordered, he's brilliant and creative. So God's excited about that. Everything has its place in history. And this means that God is not arbitrary, he's not capricious, and he's not fatalistic. 
He is purposeful. He is intentional. He is calculated. Everything is done on time, as planned, according to His divine wisdom. It's interesting, in this section, time is used 28 times. So he's emphasizing, obviously, the pervasive of it, pervasiveness of it. Look at verses 2 through 8, without singing the bird song. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Very poetic. Starting at the most foundational of all observations, Koholeth says that man is entirely, entirely at the disposal of time from beginning to end. In other words, a time to be born and a time to die. From front to back, start to finish, you are at the disposal of God's handiwork. Good luck trying to get out of that. And the reason is these two events are never, ever accomplished solely by man's volition. Um, Job says in Job 14 that man's days are determined. Uh, These are two appointments you you don't miss. You don't miss those appointments. You You don't get to decide when you're going to be born, even if it's at 42 plus weeks. (laughs) You don't get to decide that. That was not your decision as a existing soul. Uh, You know, there's debate on whether, you know, the souls exist in heaven, there's a certain number, and then, you know, God disperses them accordingly. Uh, We don't want to get into that. But the point being, you don't get to decide those things. And we are not permitted to grab the calendar of God and change our death date as if that's something we could even do anyway. Planting and harvesting. Same principle. In the Old Testament, God would often speak of planting and uprooting Israel from the land because of their covenantal disobedience. You, um, we're talking about like the Second Amendment a little bit this morning and some of those discussions. These are all huge, think of it like the car dashboard, the warning light is going, the, the, uh, the autonomous rulership and tyranny of man going it alone is um, blinking rather fervently on our dashboard and something is wrong and that something that is wrong means that God is, in my estimation, uprooting the church, uprooting us. There is a problem on our hands and we need to deal with it. So God would be the one who would do it. Too often in our day, people want a one-dimensional God. They want a one-dimensional God. Uh, a God on their terms, a God of life but never death, a God of who only builds but never tears down, right? A God of, a God of life, not death. Bonhoeffer calls it cheap grace. You know, a God of love but never repentance, that sort of thing. But what we have to insist upon, and Koholeth helps us here, is that God is the God of both. He's not the God of either, either or. He's the God of both. Um, his love... Yes, he, he has love. The, the scripture says he is love. But he also demonstrates his wrath. Interestingly enough, uh, the New Testament emphasizes uh, the aspect of time when they speak of Jesus, um, especially in Galatians 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. 
uh, Jesus um, referred to his time in the Gospel of John, right? My time is not yet. Uh, his time to go to the cross was, was not yet. Uh, not, and Jesus died um, perfectly on time. The, the exact moment he was supposed to die, he didn't miss it. He wasn't early. He wasn't late. It was God's timing. So a time to plant? Well, consider that Jesus said he is the vine, we are the branches. The gospel is a gardening project. There's a time to plant. There's a time to kill and a time to heal, the text says. A time to build and a time to break down. God will often establish his people and then he will destroy his enemies. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. He builds dynasties and then he tears them down. I think of the book of Daniel where he puts kings in place and then he takes them out as well. Um, you know, blackface Northam is a result of God's doing. It's not, he's, he's the judgment, <laughs> that sort of thing. So he puts people in place, but he also takes them out. And, and we wish, you know, for Christ to be acknowledged in all of it. There is a time to weep like Jesus did over his friend Lazarus. There is a time to laugh when Elijah taunted the prophets of Baal. Sometimes we must mourn like at a funeral. Other times we must dance, like the times when we get a prayer answered, or perhaps you're home alone and no one is watching and you want to cut a rug several times over. That's okay. You're allowed to do that. Especially if you're bad at it. You should probably just do it by yourself anyway. That's me. Sometimes we need to gather stones. Sometimes we need to throw them. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, uh, during times of war, rocks were thrown into fields of the enemies. Uh, rendering them useless so they couldn't grow crops. It was a way of destruction. Um, by the way, God's people were not permitted to destroy certain trees uh, in Old Testament warfare in the book of Deuteronomy. And this is all because God intends for his dominion covenant to move forward. God does not fight wars in all-out total warfare. There are specific principles of war that he issues because he has a plan for the future. Other times you needed to gather rocks to, to build a house or perhaps back in the Old Testament days that was a way to, to uh, distinguish a boundary marker between fields. You would put the rocks there as a way to mark off whose property belonged to whom. Sometimes we embrace someone, other times we refrain. Jesus embraced the lost sheep, but he chose to leave the Pharisees out in the gloomy reign of their own demise. Speaking of sheep, there is a time to seek something out like a wayward sinner or a stumbling Christian. Then there are times to realize that you're casting pearls before swine, which means you don't need to keep looking anymore. Sometimes you need to keep something in your financial portfolio. Sometimes you need to unload it, unload on it. What about tearing and sowing? He says there's a time to sow, a time to tear what is sown. In the, old, in the ancient world, those who mourned would actually tear their clothes, signifying their mourning. And what would they do when they were done? They would go home and they would sew it back together. Sometimes we just plain need to keep our mouths shut like Job's friends who waited in silence seven days and seven nights in order to speak with Job. It was custom to wait until the morning person would speak and then you are permitted to speak. Unlike his nagging, dripping faucet of a wife who wanted him to curse God and die. Remember that from Job. Jesus knew when to speak, and he also knew when to recuse himself from false accusations and unjust court proceedings in the Sanhedrin. He knew when to speak and when not to speak. Love and hate, war and peace, there is a time for all of these things. So what are we supposed to do? 
Wait for God's timing, right? Wait for God's timing. Live an ethically obedient life to God. Make use of the time. And not only make use of your time, discern which time you're in. You don't want to laugh at a funeral or embrace someone during false peace. That requires wisdom. Verses 9 and 10. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I've seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. What's the profit with our work, with our labor? What's the advantage? And we talked about this a little bit last week, but joy is the advantage, right? Remarkable, conspicuous, vanity-soaked joy. Kohleth asks the question about profit over and over again. He reduces the autonomous world down to nothing, the true death of meaning. Verse 11. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He, also, he has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. The word appropriate there in your text, is it means suitable. Uh, if you have an ESV, um, they chose the word beautiful. Uh, it's something that's right. It's something that's fair, something that's just. God has, God has made everything the way it's supposed to be in its time. There's no imperfections there. And this is something that pleases God. Notice in that verse 11 there, the word made. The word made harkens back to the story of creation where God made things beautiful, God made things good. He's made things beautiful and appropriate in its time. In our hearts, of course, lies this inexplicable longing to sort out the mess that is the past, present, and future. Think about the emotional stuff we deal with. Emotional things from the past, emotional things in the present, and things we anticipate for the future. We all juggle those things all of the time, uh, so we have to make sense of that. And that's a longing that God has put there. Though it's frustrating because we can't always make sense of it, God has made it this way. See, only God has declared the beginning from the end. That's what Isaiah tells us. Uh, Our job is to know that there is a beginning and an end and that God is sovereign over all of it. So don't try to necessarily you know, perplex yourself to death in trying to figure it out. Love that. Love that you can't predict the future. You, I mean, we can make guesses by how things have gone in the past. But love and enjoy that you can't do that. You can't figure God out. Um, celebrate that. Take joy in it. Immerse yourself in the sovereignty of God. And the way you do that is by submitting to it. Charles Bridges once said, I have found more in Christ than I have ever expected to want. Think about that. He gives you more than what you even expected to ever want or desire. And that's because God put it there. You have to pay attention to it. Look at verses 12 through 15. I know that there is nothing better for them to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear Him. That which is has been already, and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what is passed by. So, man has time, both time and sovereignty imposed on him. It's an imposition. You didn't wake up and say, I think I'm going to succumb to time today. You just have to deal with it. And the same is true, he says, with God's sovereignty. You're going to have to deal with that too. You don't get to pick and choose which times you want to celebrate God's sovereignty. 
Think about that when something bad happens. You're, in, you're on his time and in his, his, his governance. So, of course, Koholeth says, well, what, what should man do then? If time itself and God's sovereignty is imposed on us, what are we supposed to do? Well, he says, rejoice, of course. What did you think? Freak out? Rejoice in it. Rejoice in the redundancy of time and seasons. Don't grumble. There's nothing better than for you to rejoice in that. There's nothing better than doing good each day, he says. And, and you know what? Next time you have to go to the dish, do the dishes, just happily skip over there. Right? <laughs> rejoice in it. Don't grumble. Rejoice that God has imposed on you more dirty dishes. Kids, next time your parents sit down and say, all right, it's time to do a little math work, do a little reading, just go, happily skip there, happily go and say, isn't this great, this vanity that I get to partake in? This is wonderful. Thank you, God, for being imposing on me and my time and your sovereignty. That's where you can find happiness. So have a kingdom perspective. Kingdom perspective was, is what destroys the enemies of God. Our happiness included. Your labor, your labor, listen, and this is an interesting thought. Your labor is yours to expend and enjoy. It's yours to expend and it's yours to enjoy. And no Marx-loving communist can take it from you, at least with, you know, not without war, which incidentally there is a time for that too. What Koleth wants from us is not a fatalistic view of time, but an enjoyment of time. God doesn't give bad gifts, never. So don't think about trying to return them to him. We don't know the future. It's uncertain to us. We, we do know the present, right? However, he says, so just eat and drink and put a smile on your face, stuff contentment in your heart and enjoy it. Your labor is good. It's yours. Enjoy it. Unlike man, see, God's, God's work remains forever. Our, our work doesn't. There's always another water heater to change out. There's always more weeds to pull. There's always more to do. But our stuff, we know, is burned up in, in the judgment of God as he establishes a new heavens and new earth. But his work in and through us, that stuff never expires. It never expires. His decrees, that which has been and that which will be, are inscrutable. What God declares is inscrutable. We can't Add to it, he says. <laughs> Who of you can add to the sovereignty of God? He doesn't need counselors, the Bible says. So why do we pretend to be his counselor? You know, God, if you were really smart, you would answer this prayer this way. <laughs> we can't add to it. We can't take from it. So fear him, he says. Stand in awe of God. Enjoy the seasons because God does. God enjoys them a whole lot. Look at verses 16 and 17. He says, Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice, speaking of gun-toting Americans, in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man, for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. Does God sort out the injustice? Yes. We don't. We won't always suffer injustice. He sorts it out. What about the problem of evil? What's the, what, what about the problem of evil? Philosophically, we struggle with that sometimes. What about the problem of evil? Well, God sorts that out as well. 
All things are involved in the sorting out in the wash. God does it. Thoughts, deeds, all of it is God's to do. It's God's prerogative to sort out. And we can trust that. Look at the rest of the text, 18 to 22. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. Darwin. (laughs) For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast. For all is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from the dust, and all returned to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward, and the breath of the beast ascends downward to the earth? I have seen nothing as better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? See, without God, without God, human beings are just like the animals. They die, they experience the same fate. If you reject the sovereignty of God in your life, you don't have a category for justice, and therefore, you are but a Scottish Angus cow roaming the countryside. That's all you are. Koholath is the king of these reductio ad absurdums, reducing everything down to the absurd. You don't want God, you are but a beast. You are but a beast. See, what's the advantage of life without God? There's no advantage to it. Not a single thing. You're just cattle, you're just dust. That's all you are. The inevitability of death proves that it's not sovereign, for God is the one who grants life. There's no personality in death being sovereign, which means there's no meaning. Um, As Dr. North put it, um, ethics proves the difference between man and beast. That's the main difference. What's the difference between you and a dairy cow and or the zebra referenced earlier? What's the difference? You're made in the image of God. You have a certain value that transcends everything else that's created. So let's, uh, let's unpack this some more and, and have some fun with it. The point of this passage lies in the fact that God is the sovereign. God sets the times. God sets the seasons. And the reason that he does it, don't miss this, the reason that he does all that is in order to see that man stands in awe of him. You are to do the dishes standing in awe of God. That's the point. There's a time to wash things. There's a time to make them dirty. And in that, you are to stand in awe of God. Next time you want to grumble about your lawn, which is coming soon. Next time you want to grumble, don't. Stop and stand in awe of God. It may be the most ridiculous thing. I mean, who would have thought you'd have to mow so much? And we, But God loves it. He thinks it's great. He thinks it's great that grass grows, that it eats carbon dioxide and then kicks out oxygen so we can breathe. You ever thanked a tree? You don't have to talk to it, but you know, maybe you should be thankful. See, what Koleth argues is that God's sovereignty is something we can grasp. God's sovereignty is something we can grasp, and it's something that we can trust. Uh, we may not fully understand it, but that's not the same thing as saying that we can't understand it at all. We can grasp it. Um, history is not incoherent, meaning it doesn't have meaning. History does have meaning. And that's because it's not autonomous. It doesn't just exist on its own. 
We're, we're entirely destroying the evolutionary worldview this morning. <laughs> See, due to its non-autonomous state, it, it thus has intrinsic meaning, it has intrinsic purpose, because God put it there. History, it's not cyclical like the Eastern mystics would have us believe. Um, that's why I think he brings up the problem of injustice and, and wickedness and so on, the problem of evil. If, if history is without a purpose... Injustice is without meaning, and now we're well on our way to Absurdityville, and joy is definitely not found there. So which will win out in history? What's going to win the day? The decrees of God or the decrees of man? Are you going to submit yourself to the decrees of God, or are you going to be teased and toyed in and tempted into thinking, well, maybe the decrees of man are much better? What's going to win? That's the tension in the text if history runs its course on cycles, again, that's a pagan concept, then history's impersonal nature gives us nothing at all. And you see it all the time, the, the yin and yang theology. Like you see uh, in, in New Ageism, there's all these views of history where history is just meaningless, right? The, the guy who dies with the most toys wins sort of thing. As if history grants any meaning to you. It's a fallacy of reification. Well, history told me. History is an inanimate object. It's metaphysical. You can't touch it. No one can go to the store in Wegmans and buy organic history. You can get a lot of organic stuff, but no history that is there to be found. So it's not something that can give you meaning unless someone gave it meaning. Does that make sense? So no purpose, no meaning, no value, no concepts of justice or injustice, just absurdity and material given over to entropy and irrevocable, irrevocable breakdown. Things just go bad and, sorry, that's the universe. See, this, this passage is incredibly compelling, and not because it makes for a great 60s song about peace and other anti-war propaganda. The passage is compelling because God has oversight of times and seasons. And it's compelling because that may not always work out for a good PR campaign. Is God really sovereign over death? Would, would there ever be an appropriate time to kill? That doesn't sound very pro-life, right? Could we ever imagine a God who sees to it that weeping and mourning is a part of life? Would you invent a world with weeping and mourning? Part of the reason we must learn to mourn well, be people who mourn well, is because mourning is God's way of keeping us humble and dependent on Him. People who mourn well, for example, are people who have grown accustomed to the comforts of the sovereignty of God. Don't, don't let your tears bottle up your tears. If you need to mourn, mourn. Jesus did. There's a time for that. What about throwing stones, refusing to embrace, giving up on that which is lost? Say that to your spouse next time the remote control is lost. Well, there's a time to stop searching. The Bible says so. You know, what about tearing things apart? What about remaining silent? What about hatred? What about war? What about these things? Could we really believe in a God who would give us those things as well? See, if you really, really want to perplex an unbeliever, tell them that God has appointed a time for all that stuff. And when he objects to you, replying, well, that's absurd to me, then you may reply, well, I expected you to say that. You're going it alone. Of course you'd object. 
Guess what? My God is the God of absurdity too. See, Koalath has no problem with this obvious feature of God's creation. He has no problem at all. He has no trouble reconciling these two apparent contradictions because guess what? They're not contradictions. There is a time for killing. There is a time for healing. There is a time for those things. In God's created order, there is a place for everything, including the ugly. And there are some ugly-looking animals and creatures out there, aren't there? There is a place for that, though, in God's world. See, the passage speaks of God's meticulous providence in such a way as to remove any boasting that man might conjure up. It's gone. Even in death, man cannot escape the living God. Where might a man go to escape the sovereignty of God? Where might you go? Nowhere. He can't even end his own life in attempting to escape time. Because where is he going to go? The judgment seat of God. God is there. He is outside of time. And, and it's, he's at the end of time waiting to greet everyone, including the rebellious sinner. That's, this too is vanity. See, God is built within the walls of his great building project, what we call creation. He has built within it the principle of eternity, which grants to man in all times, in all seasons, in all spaces, something we call meaning. Meaning. If God doesn't tell us that he's in control of the times, then we might be tempted to pretend those times don't exist. Or worse yet, we'll pick our favorite times, plug our ears at the other ones, and you know, the whole la-la-la ourselves to death. I can't hear you, God. My God would never do something like that. You're right. Your God doesn't exist. See, the unbeliever, for example, can protest war all he wants. And frankly, many times we would join him in that protest because there is such a thing as unjust war. But at the end of the day, there is such a thing as a just war, and this too is a gift from God. Everything is appropriate in its time. You'll never fully understand it, but we know enough to be content with what we do know. We ought to be content with what we do know. The preacher tells us to rejoice and do good in your work in all seasons. He tells us to eat and drink and freely consume God's good gifts. We will never, ever, 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 ever add to God's decree, nor will we ever, 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 ever take from his decrees. So instead of trying to straighten that which God has made crooked, we ought to pull up a seat, kick our feet up on the ottoman after a long day of work, sip a cold drink or a warm tea, your choice, and you should probably smile a little bit. There's definitely a time for that. And verse 22 in your text says it all. There's really nothing better while here under the sun than to be happy in one's activities. If you have a rusty bolt and you can't get it, be happy. Because then you need a, something bigger. If you have a particular spot of the house that you've been ignoring, you need to clean it up, we'll get it to eventually. Rejoice in that. It's a gift from God. There's nothing better than to enjoy it. You want to deal with time and sovereignty and the meaning that's wrapped up in both. Do you want to deal with that in your life? Do you really want to try to sort out with do you really want to try to sort it out with endless speculation, conjecture? Well, maybe God, maybe this, maybe this, maybe this. How about this? Don't go that route. Be happy in your activities. Be happy. Happiness, believe it or not, I believe is one of our greatest weapons. Be happy. 
But what's the foundation of this said happiness? What's the bedrock that keeps our healthy fear of God in place? It's Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Time and sovereignty descended on Christ beginning with his birth. He was born at the right time, and guess what? Jesus died at the right time. There's a time to be born and a time to die. He planted seeds in the heart of his disciples. And guess what he did? He uprooted the religious leaders, dislodging them from their positions of power by exhausting their fury on the cross. And then we know he brought sanctions against them in AD 70. Speaking of times, there was a perfect time for Jesus to bring healing. And since there is a time to kill, the Passover lamb is the perfect opportunity. Jesus tore down the temple in Jerusalem in his own body, and afterwards he built the new temple, the people of God, because there's a time to build and there's a time to tear down. Jesus wept, and I'm guessing that he probably chuckled a bit when Pilate told him how powerful he was. Jesus mourned, and while I don't know that he danced, I'm pretty sure that he would have as a young Jewish boy singing the Psalm of Ascent, Psalms of Ascent on his way to Jerusalem. There is a time to throw stones, but not when the woman who was caught in adultery wasn't actually caught in adultery. There is a time to embrace, like when Jesus embraced Peter on the shore after denying him three times. There is a time to shun embracing when Judas feigned humility by kissing him on the cheek in the garden. Is there a time to search for that, is lo- what, that which is lost? Absolutely. That's what the gospel does. But it also doesn't cast pearls where they don't belong. There's a time for Jesus to keep his disciples close. And there was a time when to throw them away, which is absolutely what they may have interpreted when he was to his death. Is there a time to tear apart? Remember the temple curtain? The temple curtain was torn from top to bottom the moment Christ died. Was it sewn back in his place? Yes. Resurrection garments, they never fade. Jesus knew when to be silent and he knew when to speak. If only we'd model his behavior. Was there a time to love and a time to hate for Jesus? Absolutely. He loved John and he hated Satan. Is there a time for war? Sure thing, he warred against unbelieving Israel through his tears and everything. Is there a time for peace? The gospel only brings it. So we have, friends, this kingdom which cannot be shaken. So worship God in your activities with joy, with reverence, our God is a consuming fire. As, as we uh, pray, just be reminded of, of the vanity being a gift from God and not something we need to run away from. Let's pray. Father, you are good to us. You are gracious in all of these activities. We thank you that you are sovereign in time and over time. We thank you that we can trust you during those moments of uncertainty. And, and Father, we pray as your children that we would... Um, that we would enjoy the gifts, even the gifts we don't really think are gifts. Maybe we are ungrateful when we ought to be grateful for something we may not even see. We pray now, God, as we glorify you uh, in, in our worship, in our, in our fellowship meal, our communion time, and our baptism this morning, would you receive the glory in Christ's name. Amen.